This is a very auspicious occasion. The day the publication of his book, Division Street America. And uh, as we pick him up off the floor. I am, I am floored. Uh, I have uh, nothing to say <laughs> at the moment. I, you're going to talk. One of these rare occasions, I'm inarticulate. <laughs> I really am quite. Uh, I expect Nancy Wilson Ross taped this morning. This happened just this very moment. Highly improvisational. <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Mike Reichel uh, to my left. I mean that geographically, not that idea. He's, he's, he's taking over the program. Now we're going to take <laughs> over. We've okay. taken over the program. Will you start? Will you just sit there. <laughs> I know how Studs uh, doesn't like uh, trite questions, and in his preface to Division Street America, he talks about the fact that he did not ask many of the people in the book trite questions. But we're going to so we're going to start with a very original and very untrite question, Studs. How did you come to write Division Street America? Well, it came about accidentally. I'm beginning to believe more and more in chance than I, I always thought everything is worked out. And now we know about the world of the absurd, yet I think the man has some will. It came about because one day I met Andre Schifrin, and this is accidentally, here's a crazy story. The establishment was in time. The establishment, the young hmm. English players, and on the program with Johnny Bird and Eleanor Brun, who've become quite popular in England uh, with another program, not a program, but a way of life. Uh, you know. And Eleanor Brown knew went to Cambridge with a guy named Andre Schifrin. Uh, his father was a great publisher in pre-Hitler Germany, a pantheon. And then I think he worked with Gallimard Press, his father did in Paris, the publishers of Camus and Sartre. And Pantheon came to America, it's now a subsidiary of Random House, and Andre always is looking for something different. And one day I think he had uh, heard some of the interviews uh, WFMT carries on the New York station, WRVR, and was taken with him and had this idea. This is a long story, but I, yeah, I, I yeah. can shorten it. Uh, I know. No, I don't. Well, uh, not a report from a Chinese village is a book written by Yan, by Gunnar Myrdal's son, Yan Myrdal. And one day Andre calls, how about a report from an American village? And of course, here came the great difficulty. A small town in China, a revolution, an event, a fact. People put their hands on it. The light was not a political book. It was their life before and after people of this village. Now, this could not possibly be done with a large American city with so many things happening at one and the same time, that which uh, Bob Hutchins' committee in California calls the Triple Revolution. So therefore it had to be, there was no plan, it had to be, had to find certain people, not a survey, not motivational research, just uh, guerrilla journalism, I call it. So uh, some were accidental, finding a kid who drives a cab, who says, this kid started one day, I was starting on the interview, I just interviewed two Appalachian people who became very urbanized and rather seared and tough. I left them on Campbell Street. Campbell Avenue. It was a stormy night last year. Took this cab. And first, this kid, kid sees this uh, tape recorder that I was fooling around with and goofing up. And he says, uh, did you see Lord Jim, the movie? And I said, no. He's about courage. In fact, it's about me. And he starts talking. And next, he's, he's a member of the John Burt Society. He tells me why he, he didn't tell me why he joined, but I wanted to know why. And so I met him the next day at a bar. Maybe he had gin and squirt. I had something tougher. And then we went into his car. He drives the cab uh, part-time, has exterminated factory, and he joined because he wants to be someone. And out of this came an interview. I felt he's very humane. It's easy to rap a John Birch Society member. That's not the answer. It's why does someone become that? Then it was he, then an ADC mother. I knew Bill Newman was doing a series on ADC and Robert Taylor Holmes. And so I, uh, I called up Bill one day, this woman, 
attracted me, his write-up of this woman, Dor uh, who I would call a Barbara Hayes. Uh, we changed some names because it might embarrass some people one way or another, some seriously, some not, and so there's some real names used. Mainly it was try to see what are people thinking of in a large city, the people who've never been asked what they think of before. If you, if you notice in the preface, there's no journalists, mm -hmm. so no Mike Royko, yeah. no Herman Cogan, no, no clergymen, mm -hmm. no teachers, that is no professors or write books, teachers of public schools, yeah. Uh, no celebrities, quote unquote. Rather those who were considered inarticulate and suddenly become articulate. And the portable tape recorder is terribly exciting. It becomes exciting not interviewing a movie actress or a professor, but on the steps of a housing project becomes exciting. Or in a car at one in the morning in the inner city becomes exciting. Because as you talk, they suddenly open up. And basically this is, I'm, I'm wandering now because I am a little, I must admit, <laughs> Uh, stunned by, well, I think the audience knows my feelings about Mike Wright. Do you have any trouble getting him talking with a tape recorder? This is a... Well, these are people, most of them have never been interviewed before by anyone. Hardly had any been interviewed before, yeah. no. Except for Florence Scala. So yeah, there were some yeah, few names that yeah, were used. Few. Jesse Binford. Known. Jesse Binford, Florence Scala, uh, Barry <laughs> Byrne, the architect, a very marvelous <laughs> architect, too long taken for granted. A few real names used. Uh, the diff interviewing, no, I find for some reason well, you talk. I think if you're not an interviewer, I think the word interview is the thing. If it's con this sounds like a cliche, if it's conversation, Mike, uh, if they feel you ask them a question that uh, they feel you're really interested. I think they feel you're really interested. I don't know. It's, uh, there's no one, I don't know, I have, have no technique that I can explain. It's just uh, talking. I don't know. What do you say? You know, anything. Sometimes I, I fall, you'll notice I'm like a chameleon. I fall into the pattern sometimes of a tough kid as I talk. Not deliberately, but just so happens. Or if I'm talking to a pompous guy, I get pompous. <laughs> a, oh, not always. No. Well, but uh, pretty good. You're batting average. <laughs> These were, you, you had a lot more. What have you got here, 75? They're about in the 70s. Yeah, how, many, how many were these called from? All of them, about 200. And there again, it was arbitrary. Uh, some very good ones are not in. Some marvelous. Well, every one was fascinating. This sounds like a gag, but every one. I think what I did find out, Mike and Herman, what I did find out is that I was astonished. I myself, I was so surprised so often. When Dennis Mitchell, if I could return, because uh, there's a man in this book whose voice was heard on the non-played yet in Chicago Dennis Mitchell film. And this man whom I call Henry Lorenz, ends the film of Henry of uh, Dennis Mitchell, the film that Chicago banned the establishment without seeing it. And he says, we're all human. If sometimes if a man stumbles, wait for him. I'm human to wait for me. This is in the film. So I went to visit him, but I found someone I didn't expect to find. The same man, a good man, but a man of incredible fears and uh, violent, violently anti-Negro, though he would deny it. And the fear overwhelms him, the fear of the unknown. This is the same man, you see. And in fact, he, if I were to choose uh, the one example of my own astonishment, it's meeting Henry Lorenz for the second time, and really this time talk to him in depth. He wa everyone, though, wants to be someone. In, in the preface, you notice yeah. I speak of fear and face. Face. Yeah. Everyone face in the deepest sense, not in the oriental in, sense. In all, the yeah. deepest sense. It's funny, we think of face as an oriental word, yeah. but how universal it really is. This is, uh, again, I was astonished throughout, always surprised, continuously. Well, there's a kind of a, uh, you're, you're able to get 
I've read every word of this, and I read, as you know, some of it in manuscript, and you're able to get uh, people who are relatively or considered inarticulate to really talk uh, uh, almost as if they were uh, on a psychoanalytical couch. Uh, of course, we all know this is one of your great gifts with people who are ordinarily articulate, actors, authors, and the like. But uh, uh, to be able to, 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 uh, to, to get them to, uh, to use the cliche, their innermost feelings, probably, probably I, I have a feeling as I read this book, Studs, that uh, they express to you things they probably have not expressed to hardly anyone, maybe, maybe not even themselves. You, in their you just uh, hit something very fascinating, Herman. This is exactly <laughs> what some of them said. They didn't realize what they really were thinking. When it was all over, oh, often it's an elderly lady or uh, uh, this first helper, open hearth at U.S. Steel. Others saying, you know, I, uh, wow. You think, is that the way I feel? You, you didn't realize that. You know, some did not actually, were not conscious of their feelings till after our conversation. I was uh, somewhere as astonished as I was. Astonishment, I think, is yeah. the only way I could find to describe my own feelings after some of the interviews. But this matter of, I think everyone, since you asked that question about yeah. probing it, pe people inarticulate, everyone, there's a key, I think. I, it's not the same key. Not the same key. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, we're all the same. Of course we're not. We, each one is different. But each one has a common attribute, and that is to be recognized as somebody, and the other the fears. Each one has the common, not the same fears, but each one has, has some fear in common. But not wanting to, I think this, this primary thing of not realizing what he was thinking mm -hmm. all these years, mm -hmm. and suddenly saying it, like it, as it were blurted out, you know, and then he, Sometimes I'd play back part of the tape. They could, someone would say, could I hear part? I said, sure. And then I'd goof up the tape, too, because I goof up the tape a lot. Not deliberately, but I, not, I'm not very good on that one. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. It said here in the Bill Newman story yeah. in uh, the Daily News, said you, 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 you have trouble operating the tape. Oh, well, Jimmy Unrath, who works, said Jimmy worked with me on Born to Live. and I, Jimmy's the best authority on that. <laughs> on on uh, my, uh, the tape and I. Okay, well, machines and I generally have this thing. Yes, what, what kind of tape recorder is it? It's called a Ewer. Oh. Uh, it's a it's very expensive. small machine. Yeah, it weighs about, it weighs about 300 pounds, I was going to say. <laughs> it costs about $300. Yeah. Uh, pounds would be even more. But it weighs about 12 pounds. And it's marvelous. You can take it anywhere. I've, that's been in South Africa. That's been in Montgomery, Alabama. It's been in a clan town. You didn't use anything outside of Chicago. Did you like the, the Montgomery This was Chicago stuff? only. Yeah. No, these were... Oh, on that point, some people think these were interviews that have been on the air. No, only two. Uh, one involving a young boy, Jimmy, who was in the series Joy Street, and Rose, whom we call Lily Lowell in this book, who I think has her own book to write. Rose is this girl everyone considered writes poetry, and I think Rose herself will write her own book soon. Uh, but they're the only two. I played part of Jesse Binford, part of it uh, at the time of her death recently at the age of 90. But the rest have not been, uh, no, this is, these haven't been aired yet, no. Studs, are there any uh, uh, common problems, common fears, common apprehensions that all of them had? Can you generalize uh, on that at all? I notice that a great many of the yeah. people 
A great many of the people almost naturally uh, got around at one time or another uh, to the business of war, the business of the bomb. Uh, I noticed in the preface you called yourself a stage mother and had to urge some of them to say urge, certain things urge about God. God. For it. I was yeah. a stage mother for God. But how about the bomb bit? Uh, I noticed so many of the people, even the ones who aren't, don't even uh, yeah. feel the presence, uh, somehow I got around to it. It comes up all the time. Sometimes I'd have to introduce it because it's there, as though you're waiting for the word, and it's hanging. Uh, they, they speak about a certain fear. It's hanging, and then you want to say, well, what is it, you know? Is it, and finally say, is it the bomb? And he says, oh, yeah, because sometimes they don't introduce it because it's, the thought is too overwhelming. Like civil rights, race, mm -hmm. one way or the other, that would come up almost... Uh, You'd almost know when it would come. You could feel it with a certain person, anti-Negro or an integration. You don't, you'd almost feel it. Uh, and so with Vietnam, that would almost come up by itself, with the troubles, what troubles. But when it came to the bomb, it's so big, you know, that you'd have to kind of push it. Well, I noticed I played, I said in the preface, I played stage mother to God. Mm -hmm. Hardly religion, hardly mentioned, except when I introduced it. And then it would come up. Uh, Martin Marty, I noticed, the theologian in the Book Week Review, makes a point of that. Mm -hmm. It's obvious that's in uh, Dr. Marty's mind, too. But religion is such lips... Uh, what's come out is a great deal of lip service has been paid to it. But people are not quite as uh, take it. They know it's almost ritual now, and that's why the young... Uh, you know, it's the last part. It's called The Inheritors, one mm -hmm. of the last sequence dealing with the young, a variety. And, And that is one of the reasons why I suppose they question so much. They sense the hypocrisy. But the people do themselves. But the point is they're not hypocrites. The pe uh, coming back to the subject of the book, it seems that three, I've seen three reviews so far, and all three I'm happy to note are favorable, but all three hit it from a different point of view, mm -hmm. from, from the reviewer's mm -hmm. standpoint. Like Martin Marty is not quite as optimistic about the world as Digby Whitman is in the trip. Both like and and each one sees, and maybe and they're both right. They're both right. Mm -hmm. There's a fluid situation, a fluid time which we live, and it seems to me the crying need is for statesmanship. If I could go beyond the book for a moment, instead of hacks, uh, the the idea of they're all crying out for something. Everyone, no matter what their politics may be or lack of politics, what they have in common is no something is cockeyed. And we're not too far away from whatever that good thing might be, and not too far away from the bad thing. devastation either. Yeah. Speaking of the bomb, I noticed that um, one of the one of the many many memorable little passages that are very revealing. One of the things I said occasionally in a sentence, in two sentences, there's a revelation of character. Some of these people that is is is, is fantastic. And there are people who are not concerned, who seem to not be concerned with the bomb and with its uh, effects. Uh, and yet I think really are, and even what they say, for example, there's one woman, uh, if you remember, who, uh, uh, Mrs. R. Fuqua Davies, mm -hmm. uh, who when uh, you asked uh, uh, so many things happening today, just talk of the bomb, what is effect does it have on you? And it's a remarkable to hear her say absolutely none. Uh, I hear, hardly hear anybody talk about it. I think to let your life be frustrated and destroyed by some horrible thing that might happen. I think that's just the way madness lies. I mean, you have yeah. to go along. What? You know, and even in how she says it, the, the, I notice little significant things where you say, in fact, she laughs, I might have a very nervous laugh, as if she has a, almost a guilty feeling about not being concerned about what is going on. You heard about, uh, uh, I'm delighted you brought that up. You heard about three points there, I think, yeah. that should be talked about. Very gracious lady, one of the social leaders in town. She's saying something that, uh, 
another guy, I think a, a steel worker said, same thing in different words. That is, if you'd go mad if you thought about it all the time, therefore you have this protective coloration, uh, almost a camouflage. The laugh is interesting, not only her laugh. I've noticed very often, you may notice this in some of the interviews with Negroes, you hear this very often on radio or watching on TV, someone speaking who is Negro, the laugh comes at a certain moment, not with a joke. Mm -hmm. The laugh comes at a bitter moment, mm -hmm. you see. As though the laugh itself is a protection from going altogether mad, yeah. you know. Right. And so the laugh very often is the opposite of, of joy. Mm -hmm. The laugh is the, well, I must be sane, you know. Uh, I must laugh. So Mrs. Davies and I think it was Bob Carter or or uh, one of the advertising guys, Ross Pelletier, I think it was, who spoke of, he's a man who likes, he liked his, there's a very sad uh, postscript to that. There are two advertising men in the book. One loathed his work, as Charlie Landisfar, who was in the panorama the other day, and Ross Pelletier, who loves his work, the postscript is Ross Pelletier was laid off uh, about a month ago, and the team man, the new team man came and said to him, you know, we have a new team, and Ross Pelletier, this is a pseudonym, of course, so that's why I'm free in sure. saying this, uh, was so shocked. If you notice, he was so devoted to his work. And the reason he was laid off, uh, or rather retired, which is euphemism for it here, mm. was that uh, he did his good job very well. It isn't that, just a new mm. team. Didn't quite fit in with the new, I said, wouldn't you rather received a sock on the jaw than this? He says, and I, we had lunch and he said, oh yeah, I'd much rather. I didn't know, at first I thought he was cool, but he wasn't. Mm -hmm. He wasn't cool at all inside. But he, he, he used the phrase about, you get used about the bomb. If you work in a factory somewhere or in a steel mill, you hear this sound, this tremendous, you get used to it. Eventually it, it no longer registers. And so the thought of the bomb no longer, which is a sad thing, in a way, because many, some of the others are a little more articulate, more concerned than others, say, yes, we should be conscious of this, and thus maybe alter our whole attitude when it comes to ourselves and other countries. Did you get another job? Not yet. Oh, you mean Ross Pelletier? Not yet. Remember, he's a certain age, too. You have to remember that. He's 52, and uh, they offered him another job, and they said, well, how about working in advert? I'm sure I'm... I hope I'm free in saying this, since he's protected by a pseudonym. And they said, you can work in public relations, but then do you understand you're older than the new head of public relations, and uh, uh, you were getting more than he was. Obviously, it can't be. They were almost toying with him, you know. <laughs> but he was the one who loved his work. That's the point, you see. And that's not in the book, because this happened, uh, this event Very happened recently. after the book. So does your reference a little early to Martin Marty's review in Book Week, uh, I think it, I think it, listeners ought to know, if they hadn't read it, uh, that uh, he says, and it's a very important statement to make, I think, because a lot of people may think of this strictly as a Chicago book or strictly as a book, maybe even about Division Street as we know it in Chicago. Uh, he does say that uh, this uh, street, the metaphorical street, uh, in the hands of Studs Terkel takes on macrocosmic div dimensions and serves as a comment on the human condition. Uh, I don't know how that can be used in a good selling ad to sell <laughs> books, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's very true. I think this is the, the great value of this particular book, again, uh, if I may act like your press agent, uh, is do. that it, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not, you know, Division Street, literally, uh, Division Street, Chicago. 
It's uh, not, nor is it Division Street America necessarily, it's Division Street the world. This is the idea I was trying to get across. You remember, Herman, I remember I was showing you some galleys once. Yeah. And there was a, there was a battle with, not with, to me and the publishers, but just a question of what names to choose. And finally, uh, they liked the original choice, Division Street, even though it wasn't. This is the confusing aspect to many Chicagoans, perhaps to clarify now. This is, as Herman said, the metaphor, the division in us and the division in our society. And it's more, I hope, more than a book about Chicago. Uh, that's the whole purpose of it, to make a book about any large city at the moment in America, but almost could be, I would guess, 10 years from now, assuming no madman pushes a button, 10 years from now, unless those who work for joy and beauty and try to save those 800 trees, I mean 800 trees in every city of the world, uh, this may be any large city anywhere in the world in all societies, the bigness. The, so it is thoughts of people who have never been publicly quoted before, with a few exceptions, and that was deliberate because of Florence Scala's and Jesse Benford's interest in the inner city. You mentioned, uh, um, are you, do you worry about the bomb studs? Well, that's a very funny question. That's a very tough one to answer, Mike. Uh, do I worry? Yes, I do. I guess I do. Do I think about it every yeah. day? No. Because if I did, I'd go mad. I often ask this of, of Negroes, by the way. Are you conscious of being a Negro every moment of the day? And of course, you know, it's there. Uh, but to be conscious every moment would drive him mad. But events make it clear to him that he is, uh, many times. Lou Gibson in the book, another pseudonym. Lou Gibson's been around. He's a steward at the packing house workers. Uh, and he's worked in the packing house for a long time. He says, if I get a funny feeling, here I am, a city man. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm the steward. I'm in charge of many uh, young white guys. But if I go into a new town uh, involving union work or organizing, go into a motel, I get the butterfly all over again. There's that butterfly. <laughs> I thought it was over that. So coming back to the bomb, I draw this parallel because I think there is one. Uh, if I were to think about it every moment, I suppose I would go crazy. But it's in all, I think it's in all our minds, but how we push it back. We, I, you know, the human mind is marvelous. You know, terrible I, I found uh, that I, I, I talk to a lot of high school editors and kids who are writing term papers or something that come up, they're always assigned to interview someone on a newspaper if they're in a journalism course. And I ask them about this. I, I keep hearing you ask, and the answers are interesting, so I, I, I started asking them. And most of them uh, seem surprised they don't even mention it. Yeah. They, they're not worried. They don't seem to be Yeah, that's it. They, they they, I guess it's always been there uh, in their lives, and they, uh, they just don't think. But like this woman here in this, uh, who's this lady? She's a... Uh, She's from Kentucky. Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, Bonnie, yeah that's Bonnie Dawson. Yeah. You, you say, ever hear of the bomb? And she says, I've heard tell of it. Don't worry about it. I got no time to worry about it. I got too much work to do. Of course. There's Bonnie Dawson, who's an Appalachian lady. Her husband is ill. She's got these six kids. She works in a factory and displays. Gets a lift every morning. She gets up about five, comes home about eight, and. She, how could she worry about the bomb? She's worrying about the bad teeth of her kids. One kid might have TB. Uh, taking it. Sunday is her great day of relaxation. That's when she cleans the house and does everything, and straightens everything out. Uh, naturally, she hasn't. Uh, you mentioned the kids, Mike. Of course it's not on there. Again, the book is full of paradoxes and contradictions throughout. I guess they were born under the bomb. They've yeah. lived with it. You know, it's like someone who's lived in poverty and uh, in despair all his life and knows no other way. So maybe that's the way God meant it, you know. 
And so these kids live, except, of course, for the protesting kids who are different. Now, they're somewhat different, you know, the minority. Yeah. Uh, those whom I, I like, but perhaps you and I may, dis I, don't, I think Mike and I agree on so many things. On this one, we may not agree altogether. I happen to admire these kids very much as, and some of them perhaps are joining just for the purpose of being part of something celebrated, but there are some, I think, who are, perhaps are, uh, to quote Churchill, whom I do not love to quote, I think he was an overestimated man of our century. Overquoted. Um, Overquoted, but our last best hope in that sense. Yeah. The thing about, if I could just wander a bit, Churchill has voted, and he's on March, he's on Time magazine, which means God has decided, he's man of the century. And he lives in the same century that Gandhi has lived in, that Einstein has lived in. Now, he was a remarkable man of war. He was brilliant, and he saved indeed. He was a great figure in uh, the fight against Nazism. But as a man of peace, he was Bush League. Mm -hmm. And it's peace that's the problem. War is easy. And the, I think these young kids would vote for Gandhi or Einstein rather than Churchill. But this is a side comment of mine. There was a good quote, too. Jesse Binford talking about youth, you remember Studs? She said, I feel most sorry today for our young people that are growing up just at the time, and they, at this time, and the current despair they feel about lots of things. They're rebellious against they know not what. But I've come to feel, especially out here, that our great hope is in them, the youth who I think are concerned, and even the ones who are confused. They're getting a feeling of something that may affect the whole world. I don't know, I just feel it. It's remarkable that Jesse Binford, who was then, what, 90 years 90. old, this is, it. Uh, yeah. is much more in tune with what uh, what's happening, baby, than, now, uh, than here, the older people. Here's something right here, Herman's point. Jesse Binford, age 90, knows what that 16-year-old yeah. kid is thinking of far more than a 40-year-old father of that kid. It would seem, too, to me, this is another uh, discovery, perhaps not as a result of the book, but generally, that the very young and the very old uh, have something in common, that it's the middle or the established middle that is so unimaginative and that is the perhaps the core of dehumanization. And they're not bad people. This is, the, again, I don't want to be this Pollyanna. I don't want to be Will Rogers now, because I hope not. I mean, the idea of, uh, I've never met a bad, and that's, there's, there's, there's good and bad in all of us. There is the instinct for survival. There is exploitation. But in every one, there is this one aspect. Now, Jesse Binford at 90, at 90, was far, was much more young than so many who were 40 and 30. But she pointed out these kids. Some of these kids are middle-class kids who could, who voluntarily choose a life of relative poverty, voluntarily to join those who involuntarily are the, this is what that Mike writes so many columns about and so beautifully exposing the phoniness in the war against poverty. You know, that, uh, but these kids are interested in that war. The politicians may not be, but they are someone like Jesse Binford was. It's the... Uh, what would you do? Another question you always yes, ask is, what, what would you do if you were God? <laughs> oh, give us a... I want a program. I want, uh, you know, give us all particular. Would, would you have put out the fire in McCormick Place? <laughs> you know, I just heard uh, about the fire in McCormick Place. Where were you last night? <laughs> I read the headline that there is no McCormick place, and first thought is, well, nobody's hurt. Okay, it's first thing. Okay, then. You thought my the next sometimes thought, it won its fight, right? <laughs> my <laughs> next thought, I'm thinking of Mike's columns, and I'm thinking suddenly, gee, the day seems stormy, snow outside, but the sun is shining, isn't it? Yeah, it's was hard to get in and out of there without being seen. <laughs> <laughs> I was, oh, I got this cold, I have an excuse. Where were you? Where was Mike Reichel? That's one of the questions. <laughs> Don't dodge the question. It says, what would you do if you were God? 
Well, of course, I'm thinking of a column, if Mike could just transfer this one, Mike's column. That was marvelous about some of the tough kids being asked questions by certain commentators. You know, <laughs> uh, what, what are your thoughts? And I, I, think I know of one who asked that question. What would you do if you were God? And some of the kids came up with, I felt, very beautiful answers. Now you're asking me the yeah. question, I can't come up with an answer. I don't know, what would I do if I was God? I'd, I'd make, I don't know. I'd let man be man. I'd let man be man for whatever that may mean. Let man be man. Uh, I like that. Do you understand it, Herman? Uh, no. I don't know I'm what either. it means, but I think, I don't, no, I don't know what it means. On, on that same theme, by the way, not knowing what it means, sometimes, in coming back, I'll come back to God, because yeah. yeah. I always yeah. wonder. In, in the, uh, sure. in asking the questions, uh, sometimes the answer is not direct. The answer is indirect. And I come back to it again, and then I realize they have answered it sure. in that indirection, you know. Uh, that sometimes they don't answer a question directly. It's very difficult. Now, if I was God, uh, when I asked that question, you know, I received a variety of responses. Like Mrs. Davies said, most pretentious thing I ever heard. And someone <laughs> else said, uh, uh, oh, if I was God, I'd, uh, Jimmy said, I'd, I think I'd have weapons, people would shoot it, would never go off, you know. Each one would say something perhaps involving his own life and his own experience. Now, yeah, let man be man. I don't know what that means, but I think, I think what I mean is let man be able to fulfill whatever possibilities there are in him. Uh, that's what our man drivers said. Time? Well, then that's well, it then. You mean man, man with a capital M and man with a small M? Small H -M. H -M. M. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone who was born to have a chance for better or for worse, none of us, we know we're not all born equal, but the, you know, to use that old cliche, but to have an equal chance to fulfill whatever may be in him, one way or another. One and of so the, much uh, depend on. One of the answers, not to that specific question in the book, one of the most fascinating people in this book is, of course, Kit Farrow, who is a, um, well, he speaks for himself. I wonder if, uh, Michael, it wouldn't be a good idea for Studs, for example, to read one section his answer when he when studs asked kid pharaoh oh you, you believe, do you in, believe god? in god yeah i really don't i'm a dedicated agnostic and this comes after the time he was saying uh you know about uh he's he always called on god all the time also right. help me god for a high court i swear i never do a day's honest work in my life this is uh, what's what's some of his background uh, uh, kid, kid pharaoh was a, a prize fighter yeah a pretty good club fighter by the he way he says he says he's an ex-prize fighter yeah. by profession I yeah. <laughs> well, Kit Farrow is someone I had met, uh, perhaps a, a word about how I'd met him, because some of these subjects, you know, were people I had known vaguely, some I'd never known, some a tip by someone, and Farrow was standing outside his hot dog stand. He's since left town, not because this book, he left town, things were bad here. He didn't tell me why they were bad, but he left town. And he's, hey, studs, I said, hey, I call him by his real name. And uh, I had met him before because he hangs around theater people a lot. I'd met him once backstage. I figured, what well, he hangs around theater people. And he uses phrases, you know, and then they're very interesting. And so he's always talking about, I take a note before the high court or before God, I'll never do honest day's labor in my life. And now I say, you believe in God. Oh, here, before this, I asked, do you have to step on people? Oh, you know, he says, I'm a really, uh, a man can go as high as he wants, as long as he wants, if you're aggressive enough. And I say, even if, even if he has to step on others, he must, he must. In our society, you must do it. Don't work any other way. It doesn't, people will kill you, they'll kill you. And then take it up for a high court and God, we do it. Oh, me, he's talking about his brother himself. 
you see, to me, the most important thing is helping someone who's in need. Financially, if I have the currency, in any way, shape, or form, I can help people, and I do. Take an oath before court, and before God, we do it. Now, do you believe in God? I really don't. I'm a dedicated agnostic. Who was Jesus Christ? This is Kid Pharaoh talking. He was an excellent, I would say, a con man. He learned hypnotism in India. When he landed out of Israel, they wanted to shaft him because he's causing all this nonsense and riots. He said he was the son of God. Today they wouldn't kill him. They would offer him psychiatric supervision because the dear boy was in need of this. When he fed the multitude the fish, he hypnotized a half a dozen. They carried on the word. Who did he feed? He fed nobody. I'm trying to re recreate uh, Pharaoh's intensity, too. And he says, he fed nobody. Who did he cure of leprosy? He hypnotized the people. They got up and they walked. He got himself killed at 32 years of age. He, he says he couldn't keep his big bazoo shut. Did you know that Pontius Pilate offered to give this man a number? Now, of course, Mike and Herman know the meaning of this phrase. I mean, put him in the pokey, give him a yeah. number. You put him in a pokey, give this man a number. He said, now look, Jesus, you're a marvelous boy. Why don't you go off in the wilderness and cut this nonsense out and go about your business? Quit causing all these riots. This man wanted to be killed. Oh, by the way, Kit Pharaoh also believes in psychoanalysis, psychiatry. He was quoting Freud, and he's saying, you know, uh, Freud... And Jung and Adler, the tree, long may Freud live. I work on a Freudian theory. People are biologically insecure. And so Kid Pharaoh is saying, all the big shots who make it the hard way. He likes people who make it the hard way because that's the way he hopes to make it. Boss Tweed in New York, watch his name in Boston, Curly. They were, these were the giants that built the cities. These are the guys that built our country. They elect presidents. All these guys came up the hard way. Shoeshine guys and bust out crap shooters. Shoot a shot against blackjack. These are the guys we need in the country. Who needs educated moaches? <laughs> the greatest man of 20th century, and here comes the big surprise. The greatest man of 20th century, in my opinion, I hope I don't offend anybody, is Mao Tsung. <laughs> he did something the world could never do. He feeds the multitude. It's amazing about Peking. Like myself, the average layman, the business for himself in a hot dog business, I'm always in trouble with flies. An ordinary fly was a pest. And the Mao Tsung come up with a chemical. They come up with something which even us in the capitalistic system does not have. There are no flies in Peking. He's a guy come up so hard. So I say you admire Harry Truman and Mao Tse Tung and Momo Giancana. He earned expressed admiration of Momo Giancana. He's and Kid Pharaoh's and Daly, greatest mayor Chicago's ever had. Here's a man dedicated to civilizing the city. He takes his paycheck, he sits home trying to think of how to do something for the city. He's smart enough, maybe intelligent enough, and he fell into, I must say, luck. Though qualified when called upon. Qualified is a word that Kid Pharaoh uses very often. Who's qualified in our society? You name he's one percent. So my my work is to take away the money from these non-qualified people. And so he goes on. So the four people he admires are those, and he goes on thinking about his friend uh, Terence Ignatius Boyle and a certain wire here. You say when he's talking about how he made it, or people who made it. Earlier in that piece, he, he, he explains what he's made, which I like. It's, it sort of sums uh, that kind of guy up. He says, I live at the Belden Stratford. I manage a new car every year. I take my steam baths three times a week. I take a manicure and a pedicure. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Mike has pointed out something very graphic. By the way, he does not. I mentioned Belden Stratford, and I hope the people of Belden Stratford don't mind. This is, a, again, a, a change of pace. At a hotel nearby, I didn't want to identify him too closely. Although he wouldn't have minded too much, but again, I felt I had a word. I had to keep a certain word with the subject, so Belton, he doesn't live at the Belton Stratford, yeah, but at a hotel yeah, near yeah, it. Yeah. But this matter of <clears throat> pedicure and manicure, and you get this picture, 
Earlier he speaks of during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Everybody was worried. He wasn't worried because Louise, the manicure, you could see him leaning back in his chair, uh, getting a manicure and a pedicure, and the girl, Louise, I'm worried about, uh, you know, Khrushchev gives, don't worry, sweetheart. Don't worry, Louise, sweetheart. Uncle will make him turn back, and he made a U-turn. <laughs> and you can see that picture. <laughs> you know, one, one of the interesting things about this particular uh, passage, or the interview with Kid Farrell, is that... Uh, uh, it's it's in in many ways it's 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 very poetic in a rough way. Uh, as a matter of fact, Digby Whitman in his review in Books Today and the Tribune makes a great point, and he uses one of the extracts from the Pharaoh interview uh, to point out that uh, there's as he puts it a rich and unconscious poetry flows through these pages. The richer for being unconscious. He says this aspect of the book sounds a harmonic to a great work by another great Chicagoan, Carl Sandburg's The People. Yes. Uh, do, do you feel this is a, I, I don't want you to uh, well, uh, rap a reviewer or disagree with the reviewer. Do you, well, do you, how do you like the comparison? Well, it's, uh, I'm flattered, of course. It's, uh, of course, you see, uh, Mike and I, in talking about the book uh, interminably, it seems, uh, of course, have made great comparisons to uh, not so much to Sandberg, but to our mutual friend Nelson yes. Algren. And uh, although this is a book that uh, is, has broader scope than Chicago, it is also, I think, one remarkable, probably the best book written about Chicago since uh, since Algren's uh, Chicago City, City on the Mag, which was uh, 14, 15 years ago. Yes, which I quoted from in the preface, because uh, I think uh, as Herman Kogan and Mike Royko both know, uh, they share these feelings about Nelson Algren, of course, who was a poet. He's really a poet. Right. And a, uh, even though he writes prose, it's poetry. And a, a Chicago City on the Make certainly is that. And, in the beginning, I quote him in order to wrap a city. Oh, never a lovely, it's something like being yeah. married to one with a broken nose. Yeah. How's it goes? I like that, I've always liked that quote of his, and I thought I'd use that, but in the sense it was a challenge to me to find out from Permanent Words better than I do. Yeah, Nelson Algren may have said it more succinctly uh, and poetically 14 years ago. Yeah, feelings about Chicago. Speaking about ambivalence yeah. about our city, uh, my own ambivalence. And quoting Algren, it isn't so much a city as a vast way station where three and a half million bipeds swarm with a single cry, one side or a leg off, I'm getting mine. It's every man for himself in this hired air. Yet, once you become part of this particular patch, you'll never love another. Like loving a woman with a broken nose. You may find lovelier lovelies, but never a lovely so real. And that's quite beautiful and quite true, I think. And, my, and I add, to determine how real or surreal this lovely is today, some 14 years after Nelson's prose poem, was the purpose of my search. And it's also applicable, I suppose, to the world, again, the world generally. Yeah. I hope, uh, that's several times you've said this, Herman, I'm yeah. delighted. I hope that that's what people outside the city see, outside Chicago, that uh, Chicago is really a metaphor itself. Just as Division Street is, so is Chicago. It's probably the ideal city for it, because it is in what uh, Chamber of Commerce men describe as the heartland of our country, uh, the industrial city. Uh, how muscular it is today, I don't know. How much of the hog butcher, it's less than that. Butchers in other ways, perhaps, butchers the spirit, but it's not Chicago alone. But it's a large city. I found this even to some extent in Rome when I was there for a brief moment, you know. In Johannesburg, in a different way, of course, but Johannesburg has the added problem of official apartheid, and ours is an unofficial apartheid. Do you, think, do you think the tone of the, the, the book, the, the people would have been, they would have sounded this way, there would have been uh, less... Uh, uh, 
tension, less hopelessness in some of them, and more joy uh, if this was done 15 years ago. That is something uh, several people in the book have implied. That's a point, too, that's a fascinating one. Uh, people speak of even 30 years ago, the Depression. Uh, they speak of the difference in poverty. Well, that's Russ, uh, Tom Carney, I'm sorry. Tom Carney, the policeman, the very mm -hmm. literate and sensitive mm -hmm. policeman, uh, is saying he, and Lou Gibson, the Negro packing house man, both said almost the identical thing in different ways about the Depression. How there was a helping of one, and so did uh, Eva Barnes here the former tavern keeper, who's a remarkable woman, a huge lady. Uh, she's sort of like Hemingway's Pilar. Uh, all three spoke of a certain period in the Depression when people were poor, that is, they were poor financially, but spiritually something, they helped, like a guy would get off the streetcar, give the next guy a transfer. You can use the transfer. Or uh, they speak of choking the cigarette, choking the butt, and giving the next guy the butt. Or often off the L, handing the guy the newspaper. <coughs> Now, would this be so today? Is this now we come to this overused word alienation? This in each one, I think his own problems so overwhelm him. The world does that he's for himself alone. There is that feeling. Some have implied, some have hope. It's strange. Digby Whitman's review and Martin Marty's, you notice, so, yeah. are different. Very different in yeah. their approach. Yeah. Uh, Digby Whitman feels there's hope. Marty says, speaking of Sister Evelyn, the Glen Mary nun, and myself, well, these two have hope. I don't know whether I do or not. Again, here's my ambivalence. I think I have to, uh, uh, to use a Robert Lowell phrase, to survive the day. I mean, he writes poetry to survive the day. And I suppose I have to have hope to survive the day. But Mike's question, 15 years ago, there might have been more, more of a sense of actual joy because the more thi the things overwhelm more. Remember the TV commercials we see you know, bang, 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 the tribute to things, to things. And I don't think right guard is that important. And if I were to take it off, take it all off with Noxima to the rhythm of that guy, I'd rip my skin to ribbons, you know. <laughs> but it's this, it's this, the way we use the commercials, the phony airsats sexual approach to everything, the things, the value of the things and thus the valuelessness by comparison of the man. So that things become more important. And this, in a way, to me, helps explain Gage Park and Marquette Park, too. These are not basically evil people who, who, who threw the rock at King, who offered those obscenities. There are people who've become terrified by something outside, but the, the, the horse, some have a horse, we have a horse, the color TV set, the well-kept lawn, the status, that becomes the important thing. He himself is really... And because his life is joyless, it's like the little kids I saw in Montgomery, Alabama. I mean, the white kids, the National Guardsmen, with the Confederate emblems, they were bewildered by that march because the myth is shattered. The myth is someone less than they. So in order for the people at Gage Park or Marquette Park or the kids on the sidewalks of Montgomery or the furious car dealers in Montgomery or even the guys who joined the Klan, uh, in order for them to survive a life without joy, a life that is rather bleak and wretched, they must be told there is someone less than they. But if that someone less than they says, I'm not less than you, then the myth is shattered and they must explode. So it's a question of shattering of a myth. Mike's, uh, <clears throat> Mike's bringing up the, um, the uh, uh, point about whether 15 years ago they would have, uh, in relation to this city, would have spoken differently with more joy. I think, I think one of the uh, evaluations of this book uh, that bears on this particular point and also uh, stands in the middle between the view that Digby Whitman has in the Tribune's books today and uh, Martin Marty's review 
is a part of a, a little paragraph in Bill Newman's, uh, I thought, absolutely beautiful profile of, uh, of uh, studs in uh, the current panorama, which incidentally kicked off the, in effect, serialization of Division Street America in the Daily News, when he says this, he says, Division Street America is a lament for a lost dream of a shining city, and it's true that these people do that. Uh, he also writes, it also may be the story of a new city being born in pain, uh, for it bears Turkle's strong impact, and he is a man of joy and sorrow. I think it's important, I think, to point out maybe that the book is, is not, uh, you know, there's a lot of lusty joy oh. in this book. These people are not all, you know, uh, uh, haunted by uh, f fear alone. No, I think that this, I hope that this is so. I, I wanted it to be so. I remember when we were working on the book, uh, when Kathy's Muda was doing some of the typing for me, and she was quite marvelous at it. I was saying, how is this balance? I'm, you know, I'm detached, you know, but am I overemphasizing one thing? And we felt pretty sure that there was a sort of balance kept. Of course, there's humor. There's a great deal of humor in it. That's why the dedication came after the book. I knew Jane Addams would be in it, the idea of Jane Addams, and Louis Sullivan, who had the city of man, but Ring Lardner, too. And Ring Lardner, because many of the people speak like Ring Lardner wrote. Yeah. And suddenly, I've always, as listeners know, I, I love Ring Lardner and read his stories on occasion, thanks to the uh, consent by his son, Ring Lardner Jr. But Lardner was so fantastic. 30, 40 years ago, he caught the way people talk. They still talk that way, some do. And there's a lot of, a lot of funny stuff in it. And there is this joy in the midst of all this adversity. There is yeah. this individual seeking of joy throughout. You feel as though almost you could bust through. You know, Mike, uh, uh, Bill Newman's piece, just a word about, if I could talk about uh, some of the Daily News people, they know how they are about Mike Royko and about Georgianne Geyer and Lois Willey, and Bill Newman deceives you. He looks like he's not listening to you. And then they, you know, in fact, it seems that we were asleep. He seems that we, and so you realize he captures new one. Oh, there's Bill Newman. I didn't notice him sitting behind me here. <laughs> I didn't know Bill was there. He's half asleep. He looks like he's a most incredible. Uh, now that, that profile of me threw me for such a loop. I still haven't recovered from it. I wasn't aware. I make a comment that he was listening. And of course, all the nuances just threw me for a complete goal, you know. Or as you say, his kids throw me for a ghoul. But it's a matter of, <laughs> it's a matter of joy and, and, uh, and sorrow. I love that phrase of Sean O'Casey. What is life? What is life? He says, life is a song in one ear and a lament in the other, you know? And I subscribe to that. I'd like to quote again from Bill's piece uh, in which he summarizes who the people are that are being talked to here. Uh, you said earlier that they are not the consciously articulate people like uh, writers and uh, clergymen and speakers and teachers. He says, here are the half-choked, half-poetic voices of taxi driver and Appalachian immigrant, swinging bartender and street gammon, landlady and salesman, philosophic cop and well-to-do socialite, viewing the harshness of city life with candor and longing, despair and defiance, then he adds, and joy too. In Studd's words, most of them are non-celebrated. Their identities matched by pseudonyms, but all are profoundly recognizable as human beings. I think this is a very important point. These are these are uh, very vibrant people, no matter how mundane their lives and tasks and jobs are. Studs, did you have any? Uh, this is a in inevitable question too. Did you have any uh, quote favorite 
end quote, among the people you interviewed from any viewpoint? That's a tough, each one, no, I, I don't think I could really answer that. Mm. In a different way, naturally I like the kid, I like Eva Barnes with her joy. At the same time, this Mexican guy, who I call Jesus Lopez, here's a man, and he almost was the key, Here's a man who used to be a Golden Glove fighter years ago, was very bright in school, and now he lives in a, a suburb. It's a middle, lower middle class suburb. He's, he's the aristocrat of steel, you know, the first help open hearth, gets about 10 grand a year, and they get long vacations, but he has no joy. He says, I just wreck cars now. Because since he came back from World War II, strange things happened. Like, he used to get in fights often. He'd knock a guy down, the guy'd get up, they shake hands. This time, he knocked a guy down, and two other kids, I know, had jumped on the guy who was down. He couldn't understand this. He asked the kids why, they didn't answer. This kind of a zombie violent feeling. And so he said, he cuts himself out of the world. He says, I don't care what happens. And so I say, you, do, you don't care? He says, of course I care. <laughs> of course I care. As he takes another long swig out of the beer can. Uh, he's important. Uh, the elderly lady who's lived in the same home, Elizabeth Chapin, that's her mm -hmm. real name, and uh, she, she should be proud of She's quite a woman. Her thoughts of joy and beauty, she still looks for it. Barry Byrne, whose real name was used, the architect, speaks of his search for delight. And of course, there's Lucy Jefferson. I can't leave her out, the feeling tone. Uh, she's the uh, Negro lady who works as a, a therapeutic aide at one of the very fashionable hospitals. I use another name of a hospital in the book, just change it. And uh, she's has a tremendous vibrance and joy. And she says in the feeling tone, you know, it's a, either hostile or it's a, or it's friendly. If you, if you haven't got it, baby, you're dead. Hmm. And it's the lack of feeling too, as that girl who works for a uh, popular Cool Young magazine. She's very, this girl whom I call a, I better not use her name, I better make a slip here because she's, had, she's been in magazines before talking about a friend of hers who's very popular, not Jan, philosopher, Jan. the new philosopher of, of Jan Hedonism, Powers. Jan Powers. And uh, she says she has no feeling. She says it directly. Yeah. In fact, her own, oh, no, I don't feel anything. This, I've, I've come across no one quite like that who was so direct about it. But I had no one. And of course, among the kids, Lily Lowell and Jimmy, no one single person. And of course, the couple, the Carters, Bob and Therese Carter, in a way. Mm -hmm. In Bob Carter, to me, you see all the decency of a man who wants to be independent, whose anti-status throws him, wants to build his own place, even though the house is no good. It's his, and he's, he's a great craftsman. He's a marvelous uh, foreman at an auto body shop. And his wife, Therese, who wants to go back to school, she says, don't laugh. I said, why well, not laughing? He says, I'll read even matchboxes. She's curious about things. Those two, no one rule. I had no one, no, I can't put my finger on a single. Of course, Florence Scala and her prologue, in a way, she might say she was, no, nah, there was no spokesman. I was about to say she was the spokesman. There wasn't any really, but she spoke of the ambivalence in her discovery of what she calls the ugliness in nice people later on. Again, Bill Newman's piece, the stuff I like best in there was stuff about studs. Like here it says, he, this is where Bill had said that you would want a, uh, a prize for uh, a moving documentary, Born to Live. Then he says, he, I mean, you studs, he had come a long way from the time in 1948 when he conducted a jivey record column full of such homey thoughts as one man sugar is another oh, geese cyanide. Oh, God. Yeah, Did I, you say I, that? Well, despite well, I'm, like I, I, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> well, he has come a long way. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the reviewers. That's a good line. <laughs> 
One of the reviewers points out that, uh, that uh, uh, in his preface to this book, The Vision Street America, Studs uh, uh, writes so beautifully, he says it's so beautifully written, as to prompt the wish for more of his own prose. Uh, what about that, Studs? What what go what goes from here on? Not that you've got, not that you've had the needle. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> you have to stay on the habit. Yeah, I, I've got it. I don't know. It's difficult. There's a play, as you know, Herm. Yeah. Herm's been aware of this play for a long time, called Amazing Grass. It's Norm Pellegrini since we play the song so often. That's as a possibility, not on Broadway, which is quite natural. It's not that sort of play. There's a possibility, and Andre Schifrin was speaking of another project. But I don't know at the moment. I'm just. Uh, I'm very. I must. I must say, if I can make a personal comment about the visit of these three gentlemen here, Herman Kogan, Mike Greco, and Bill Newman, I'm very, uh, very moved. Well, our favorite, of course, you must know that our favorite character in this book is Studs Terkel, because uh, the reviewers have pointed this out. There's a great Bill again mentioned in the pieces. In all of the the presence, Terkel's presence in all the interviews is is very, very moving, very obvious. Yeah. And that's I, what I think gives great, great point to. And I tried, here's the challenge to me, as you know, as Bill points out, how excited I get and involved. The idea here, the book would be of no value at all if my point of view were in, my point of view is in the preface, my observation, not point of view, just observation, but if it were in any way impeding upon or impinging in, in, in what they were saying, the subject, then it'd be of no value. It had to be they themselves talking freely. And I hope that was accomplished. Now, I was astonished, I say, at myself, too, for my restraint, I think. You know, uh, it's a question of being detached, and no man is fully objective. You know, Hazlitt, the great critic of the uh, 19th century, spoke of, uh, he himself was an egalitarian, but he loved Coriolanus, the autocrat, and he wrote of Coriolanus because he was a dramatic figure. And so Hazlitt was a man who was both detached and involved. And that is a something to be sought, obviously. I just like to say before we finish it, it it's it's a good, looks like a good book. The pages are glued in, <laughs> 381 pages, which is a lot a lot of pages for yeah. the money, and it looks very sturdy. It's just, it's you know, physically sturdy. Yes, yeah, it's, it's sturdy. <laughs> I think we can end. I think with a commercial note by uh, saying, as one of the reviewers said, that it's a great book to start the year with and that the highest compliment we probably could pay Studs Terkel, as this reviewer did, is to say that it's probably not really his book at all, it's the people's book, and it's going to sell like hell. Herman Cogan and Mike Royko and Bill Newman seated here are in the studio with me. I, uh, this is a surprise to me very much indeed. And I thank you very much. I'll tell you more after the show, but I'm very, I'm overwhelmed. I and Norman, Norman knew of this. Thank you very much. <laughs>